Welcome to Better Off Red. Hey everybody, I'm Danny Catch. I'm Eric Reuter. Jenny isn't here with us today. And that's Jenny. why I'm calling Yeah, she hates that. So oh, this is so a way we'll <laughs> test if she's even listening to the, the episode. Call her Jennifer, you can call her Jen. You cannot call her Jenny. Um, so Jenny's not here, but we have a great episode. We are uh, interviewing the distinguished geneticist, Joseph Graves Jr. He's a member of Science for the People and has done really important work um, in his own research field, but politically as well, countering the myths that won't die about the existence of biological race. It's going to be, it's a fascinating discussion. But first, Danny and I are going to talk about the announcement that everyone's been waiting for, which is that Bernie Sanders is going to run for president in 2020. So Bernie Sanders is running for president in 2020, Danny. Yeah, it didn't really get a lot of attention, I don't feel like. Yeah, um, I mean, it was a bit of a snoozer. Yeah, only he only raised $6 million in the first 24 hours. Don't exaggerate, $5.9 million. Sorry, I'm, uh, yeah, can't, can't lie to the class. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, yes, Bernie's running, it's going to be fascinating, right? I mean, on the one hand, you can look at it as... He has become, you know, one of, if not the most popular politician. There's the strange enigma of Joe Biden's continuing popularity, but um, <laughs> it does but, sort of defy logic. Well, Bernie's it? become popular by like talking about a bunch of shit, and Biden, I think, has just been popular by like people not remembering what he's actually for. You know what <laughs> good, I mean? Good point. <laughs> but, good point. Um, but all that being said, you know, so he's starting this race with. Probably the strength that was his biggest weakness last time at the beginning, it was like no one had heard of him. Now he's like one of the most known politicians, has a huge base. So on that hand, it seems really good. And yet on the other hand, he's not going to take the Democratic Party by surprise, you know. By all accounts, he has a, a formidable digital strategy and a whole bunch of strengths that he can now, you know, out of the gates call into action um, that he couldn't in 2016. And that seems like it means that, you know, rather than him starting with kind of zero name recognition and so on, he's kind of like the front runner or one of the front runners. Don't forget Biden. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> right. And I also think that this doesn't mean the narrative that Bernie um, is out of touch with, you know, issues that people of color face are isn't going to persist. But the fact that you know, in the wake of his 2016 run, you saw these socialist candidates like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib run and win. It means that I find it funny the way the media is painting it like, oh, they've stolen some of his authority. It's like, no, they're actually expanding the idea that being a socialism isn't just an old white Jewish guy from Brooklyn think that it's that it's millennial, that it's Latinas, that it's people of color, you know, so that will completely help him in, in terms of broadening uh, his appeal. And even some of the ways that his appeal wasn't broadened were greatly exaggerated in, in 2016. Yeah. And I, I this is just a side note. So excuse my rant here for a moment, but I was really kind of struck by Stephen Colbert's take on Bernie's announcement, which I just found to be littered with a series of jokes about him being elderly, which I just, I hope that his audience writes him a whole bunch of angry letters about that. I mean, and hey, don't the statistics show that like older voters tend to be more conservative? Shouldn't Bernie actually be positioned perfectly to kind of draw whatever you can off of the 
the older vote and bring it in a leftward direction. I mean, I don't know. I just found it to be really insulting. Well, that probably gets into then the, the flip side, though, of what the obstacles Bernie's going to face. I don't mean Stephen Colbert. Like, yeah. But the. Well, Stephen he, Colbert might be pretty hard against Bernie. I guess we'll see how that well, plays I just out. Mean, right. But, but I think that signifies the edge that's in so many people's voices already around Bernie. Like, no, you know, and this is to me the flip side of. It was very funny when Howard Schultz, the Starbucks CEO, talked about running and everybody just dunked on him. And it was it was very gratifying to see a billionaire get dunked on. But the flip side of it was people were outraged at the idea of someone running in some sort of a third party venture. You know what I mean? And that same sentiment the Democrats have to unite and those who then think that Bernie Sanders can't win or, you know, will hurt the party. You're already hearing that serious edge in their voice. And he's not going to be running against Hillary Clinton this time as the only alternative to the ultimate symbol of like a discredited status quo. He's running against Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, you know, 18 other people that I'm forgetting at the moment. Almost all of whom have basically adopted the key signature proposals that he brought forward in 2016 and that no one else at the time thought was even possible to talk about. Right. I mean, they're all letting Nancy Pelosi be the bad cop and dismiss Medicare for all and the Green New Deal while they all pretend, except Warren is closer to this stuff than other, you know, he's not yeah. painting them all with the same brush. Mm-hmm. But while most of them sort of, you know, adopt, oh, I'm for this too, just, you know, maybe in a more gradual to never sort of phase in plan, you know. <laughs> yeah, cast your mind back to 2016 for a moment and recall that Bernie Sanders was a surprise second. And who knows whether if the DNC hadn't done all it could to obstruct his campaign, he might have come in first. Right. I mean, I've always thought there's a flip side to that that is not talked about as much. And then is, which is he came in a close second um, paper. I mean, in, in reality as well. But because he started off with a little name recognition, he never was really quite in danger of overtaking Clinton. And I only bring that up not to be dismissive at all of how incredible it is that he got 13 million primary votes, got 45 percent of the vote. But I felt like for all the chicanery we saw, we never saw the full fury of Democratic Party panic. You know what I mean? At, at the prospect of Sanders winning. Now, look, the way politics have been, maybe that would have backfired as well. So my, I'm not saying that it's like poo-pooing, you know what I mean, uh, uh, how close he came. But, but Well, they also had the superdelegate insurance policy, which right. they've now changed right. um, as a result of the rules and, and all the anger at the right. DNC. For- which, right. Anyways, you go ahead to now, and one of the things that was, you know, in 2016, it was basically just a two-person race of Sanders right. versus Clinton. Sanders got, you know, I think about 45% of the total primary votes. It still put him in second. Trump facing the clown car of like 29 Republican candidates <laughs> was the front runner by a large margin only getting 25 to 30% of the vote until towards the end of the process when the Republicans tried their never Trump maneuvers, which then galvanized Trump to getting about 50% support. There could be a dynamic this time, or there will be a dynamic unless tons of Democrats drop out, leading to only two or three people in the race by primary time, which, by the way, we shouldn't write off because that's what Democratic Party pressure could look like this time. You know what I mean? Is like, look, is is whispering to people, you've got to, you know, we yeah. have to have this one or two people going against Bernie this time. But right. if that doesn't happen. We can't happen, split the establishment vote among right. a lot of us We gotta, it, if we're going to beat Bernie. Yeah, because the fact is, is if he has sort of an unwavering 25% support yeah. in a field of 12 or 13 people. That's you know, a winner. Yeah. Right. So you have this dynamic of a crowded field and a crowded field that's more left wing 
than the Democratic Party has been accustomed to in recent, maybe, you know, certain throughout our political memories, where there's this sort of growth in popularity of these very left-wing demands. And that raises certain questions that could be either an opportunity or a peril for the Bernie Sanders campaign, right? Because on the one hand, they're now speaking to his strengths, and you would think that that kind of that could rub off on him and kind of drive his popularity further. On the other hand, if they're basically stealing his thunder, does that now make it seem as if, well, why would we go with Bernie, who may not be, quote, as electable, unquote, as some of these more mainstream candidates? Um, And then it also raises the question, well, will that then compel Bernie to actually move even further to the left in order to kind of carve out some sort of niche for himself or not. And how does that relate to all the other kind of big forces that are kind of crisscrossing through the Democratic Party, the different political trends? Yeah, this is a great set of questions. And and we can preface, we can pull it all apart. And we can also preface all this by saying, obviously, we don't know how this stuff's going to play out. And and we don't want to just get into crystal ball gazing. We do want to kind of get this discussion eventually towards, you know, what is it that we think socialists and activists should do? But we do need to understand some of this context of, of the terrain. The point about is it possible that the dynamics of this campaign could force Sanders further to the left is really interesting because it doesn't have to mean further to the left in terms of staking out even more left-wing positions. Like the formation of the armed workers militias. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's what it also might compel him to do, but I'm not sure it will, is if everybody's claiming to adopt your policies, you have to then distinguish yourself by saying, but wait, I'm really for them. And they're not, which then points you in the direction of having to more critique the Democratic Party, which and look some at their people record. May, yeah, and some people may record. disagree with this. I think Bernie's actually he's always been tepid about he has more indictments of capitalism than the Democratic Party. Not to say he never critiques. He'll talk in general about both parties being, you know, the influence of corporations and money. But he does not really talk about the systematic role of the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that to be like a gotcha thing, but you could see the dynamics of this campaign possibly forcing him more in that direction, or certainly it should lead his some of his supporters on the left and, and those of us who aren't in his campaign but are very sympathetic to what he's trying to do. It could offer major opportunities to really raise those questions because the appeal of the Elizabeth Warrens and the Kamala Harris's is going to be, we're for everything Bernie is, but we're not going to alienate. We're going to unify the Democratic Party better. Like That's going to be their, their anti-Bernie pitch. Yeah, that's true. They can say they're going to be the ones to unify the party, but clearly the main dynamic that we have seen take shape within the Democratic Party really since the day that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joseph Crowley in her primary in June 2018 is that there is a dynamic that has been unleashed where the Democratic Party is clear now that there are a bunch of voters way to the left that they have to figure out how to relate to if they're going to actually um, be able to cash in and get themselves elected in ways that are, are obviously possible in this moment. I mean, it does seem that the hatred for Trump um, really couldn't go a lot higher, especially in the wake of this border wall emergency thing, the fake emergency for the border walls driven even more alarm, not just about the backwards politics of the border, but also just like running roughshod over basic, you know, separation of powers and things like that. So the question is to come back to the Democratic Party is, is Bernie drawing the party leftward 
and creating a kind of situation in which there's uh, the, the potential for, you know, uh, real fissures to open up. And I think that that's there's un, undoubtedly that that is one part of the dynamic. But the other part, the other question is, to what extent is the party more generally embracing this, actually looking to carry out a pivot of sorts? Because now you've got all these candidates you were talking about. I love the image of the VW bug with, you know, a dozen candidates spilling out of it, all repudiating their former records on questions of mass incarceration and um, accepting healthcare money and oil industry money and so on. They're all looking to actually carry out a pivot, something we haven't seen the Democratic Party do in some 40 years of actually looking to its left to actually tap into a sentiment that it can ride an electoral wave around. And that is a really different thing than what we've seen throughout this entire period of kind of neoliberal ascendancy and superiority um, that really dates back to the early 80s. Right. I mean, I guess some of the question comes down to to what degree is the Democratic Party apparatus, the sort of, you know, the, the donor class, the... Pelosi's and the Schumer's in the world, how tightly are they holding the reins and how much has it gotten out of their control? And I think there's dynamics of both there, but it is worth paying attention to the fact that outside the realm of what people say, in the realm of what people do, like you look at what the Democratic Party in Congress, their deal over the border, their handling of the shutdown, with the exception of Ocasio-Cortez and a few others, you know, really staking some real ground against funding DHS and ICE and stuff like that, the Democratic Party in action conducted the same rotten compromise with Trump around uh, border security, you know, to forestall the shutdown. It's important for us to keep in mind both things at the same time. The promises that presidential candidates feel like they have to make to the base is a very hopeful sign and 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 creates all sorts of room for grassroots activism around the Green New Deal, around Medicare for All, around protests on college campuses against tuition hikes and for free tuition. You know, those are very substantial things. At the same time, the the fact that the left wing of the Democratic Party in Congress, the incoming people voted for Pelosi as speaker, you know, the subordinate role that this progressive caucus still has to the centrist in charge. We have to pay attention to that. The existence of one doesn't mean that the other is a lie, but they're both very much in effect. Right. And here, here's why this matters beyond just having the right analysis. To the extent that you think Bernie Sanders is dragging the Democratic Party left against their will, or that they recognize the need to move left or letting themselves get dragged to the left, with the exception of like the Howard Schultz's, you know, of the world who suddenly find themselves very out of step uh, with what's going on. It matters because there's going to be incredible pressures and tensions within this campaign on Sanders and his supporters, uh, which you already hear right now, to start making nice with the Democratic Party, to recognize that they've won. You shifted them. Now it's time to unify the party, time to be a real leader. You know, and the question of whether you see and we can disagree about the strategy of being inside the Democratic Party, you know, or not. But whether you see fundamentally this is a campaign against the Democratic Party or to unify it on a more left wing basis, that's going to be a big test for Sanders and how he responds to that. We're running out of time, though, and I think, you know, we both thought it was important before we finished that we get into, so what does this mean for what socialists and activists should be doing? Um, And right before we started recording, Eric and I were talking about this roundtable that happened uh, in Jacobin around Bernie. 
where they invited Matt Iglesias, the writer from Vox, to come on, a liberal writer. And it was very interesting in a number of ways. You know, interesting points were brought up about Bernie's prospects. But we both found it kind of unsatisfying as well, especially because right in the beginning, Iglesias points out astutely, I think, a real dynamic in the race, which is that there's lots of very loyal Democrats and people who are afraid of anybody, you know, of Trump winning, who don't trust Bernie and how this is going to be a problem because they see Bernie as too much independent from the Democrats. And they sort of had an interesting back and forth about how this could affect Bernie's prospects. But what never came up was, including from people who are for breaking with the Democratic Party, maybe just on a longer term basis than we are at Better Off Red, what never came up was, okay, so this is going to pose questions in the here and now for the left about defending Bernie for being independent from the Democrats, even if we think it's in way to, you know, he's obviously running in the Democratic primary. Well, right. I do think that for the left, these next 18 months until the election really offer us an opportunity to kind of engage in this debate about the longer term prospects for building a left that's outside the Democratic Party, that's independent, that's based on working class and socialist politics. And in order to engage that debate, look, there's at least a couple ways that you can talk about Bernie in 2020. One is to kind of go through the horse race and really think of it in very electoral terms that kind of take the rules of the game as given. I think we both think that you really have to be aware of and very attuned to those dynamics. That's what we've just been doing. <laughs> exactly. But then below that, there is a whole question about how do we think through a strategy that does play out over perhaps, you know, several more years to find our way through to an independent political party that contains many thousands of people, hopefully some trade unions and and so on, social movements that can actually put forward a different vision altogether. And that's what was kind of striking about that article was that it really didn't sort of so much grapple with the question of how do you heighten these contradictions within the Democratic Party, which, by the way, just to be clear, you don't have to be within the Democratic Party to do because what kinds of initiatives we pursue as activists can do much to take what has been opened up in terms of possibilities, whether around abolish ICE or Medicare for all or whatever, and then to actually show that there are organized groups of people and trade unions and social movements that are behind those things that can show that, yeah, because there are now elected officials talking about that, it gives us new opportunities to organize around it. And then showing that people are organized around it actually pushes even more space open for us to engage those things and to build new sorts of organizational vehicles and structures and so forth. And I just think that those are the kinds of questions that if we're a left that's going to take seriously what the opportunities are that are opened up by Bernie Sanders 2020, we actually need to talk about those things and not kind of leave them to some afterthought. Right. And, you know, I think oftentimes the question of what it means to be outside the Democratic Party, independent of the Democratic Party can just be reduced to, including by some of us who occupy that position, as just being against Democrats and advocating a separate party. But it's also about how you it can inform your strategy even in times when the dominant political trend is going to be this race happening inside the Democratic Party. And what, what I mean by that is taking an example of Medicare for all, for example, right? The Sanders campaign will offer many opportunities for people to be talking about Medicare for all, rallies around Medicare for all. And many people who support Bernie on that basis are also going to very readily agree with the idea that the, with the control that pharmaceutical companies and health insurance has over our lives, just someone getting elected isn't going to implement it. That we need what Bernie often calls a political revolution, but when you actually give that some teeth with healthcare strikes along along the what we've seen with teachers or whatever, that we have to be building social power 
in order for even if Bernie gets elected to implement that, right? And and the way you argue that, though, is on the basis of the fact that the party that Sanders is running in is hostile to Medicare for all and will do everything in their power to sabotage it, which even can, as they give rhetorical support, which includes to the tactic of giving rhetorical support to it in order to try to dilute it and divert the meaning of Medicare for all away from what people want the meaning to be. Just like Obama's Obamacare ended up diluting the meaning of universal, what used to be called universal health care toward this heritage foundation written, you know, uh, uh, solution. People can be open from that, but it's very, you know, to start from a standpoint of being opposed to the Democratic Party as an institution helps inform a strategy like that. Agreed. All right. Well, we're we're kind of at time. And so I think we're going to have to call it there. I mean, we obviously don't have all the answers or anywhere close to even a few at this point because everything is now just starting to take shape and this is going to play out over some time. But I think that we can agree that we'll return to this because how we do parse through all of this and get down to the nitty gritty of what are the actual steps that the left needs to take is going to be really critical for running as far as we can with all the possibilities that will be opened up in this presidential election season. Now Eric and I are going to speak with Dr. Joseph Graves Jr., a genetics professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro and a member of Science for the People. Dr. Graves is the author of The Emperor's New Clothes, Biological Theories of Race at the Millennium, and The Race Myth, Why We Pretend Race Exists in America. Kind of a good authority to speak to about the topic of biological racism. Um, In this conversation, we're also going to refer to a lot to an article that received a lot of prominence in the New York Times back in March called How Genetics is Changing Our Understanding of Race. This was written by a geneticist named David Reich. which sort of argues a number of things that Joseph Graves argues against. And so, and, and, and he and a number of other um, scientists and researchers put together a response uh, to that article, which the New York Times did not run, unfortunately, but BuzzFeed did. And we're going to include links to that in our show notes. So I think we're, we, we think you're going to really uh, enjoy this conversation. Dr. Joseph Graves, welcome to Better Off Web. We're so happy to have you. Thank you guys for inviting me. You know, on this show, we've done a number of episodes that have involved different aspects of the fight against the far right and white supremacy. But most of them have been on the terrain of political movements. And today we want, we're taking it to the terrain of science. And, and I'm, even though most of our listeners, I'm pretty sure, are not researchers or in the hard sciences themselves, we think it's going to be a pretty relevant discussion for everyone. It was a couple months ago the New York Times reported on how white nationalists are misrepresenting genetic research to claim that science proves their arguments for biological racial differences and white supremacy. And in response, the American Society of Human Genetics um, denounced these attempts to link genetics and racial supremacy. But it seems to me, and this is getting into into our, our first question, that even among the vast, vast majority of scientists who, of course, don't want to see open racists misusing their research, there seems to be a real 
debate about the best way to do this. And, and I bring this up because the geneticist who has probably received the most media attention over the last year is David Reich, who argued in the New York Times in April that race is a real biological concept, not just a cultural one. And that if scientists don't acknowledge what he considers to be an undeniable fact, that they're going to discredit themselves and give the far right more legitimacy. And Dr. Graves, you helped organize a response to that uh, that piece from 67 different scientists and researchers arguing that this is in fact wrong and, and also the wrong approach to the whole question. I just want to start off with a quote from Reich and then give you a chance to make a response. In, in his sure. Times article, he wrote, I have deep sympathy for the concern that genetic discoveries could be misused to justify racism. But as a geneticist, I also know that it is simply no longer possible to ignore average genetic differences among, quote, races. Well, Dr. Graves, you too are a geneticist. Why do you disagree with Reich? I disagree with David Reich. In fact, I've just written a chapter for a new book um, on critical race theory in the academy, in which I spell out in print my disagreements with David Reich. But the first part I disagree with him on is whether our species, anatomically modern humans, have races. Mm-hmm. And now what you guys probably don't know is that not only has Reich disagreed with me um, in conversation, he also calls me out by name in the last chapter of his book, Who We Are and How We Got Here, as a, quote, defender of the orthodoxy. And in my, my response to him, I point out that the term orthodoxy can have both positive and negative connotations. Um, it is right to be orthodox when the evidence supports that orthodoxy, like the fact that the sun is not the center of the universe. It would be orthodox to say that's not true. Right. Um, and so it's wrong to be orthodox when that orthodoxy relies on, on irrational belief systems. And in fact, Reich's continued belief in the existence of biological races in the human species is exactly that, an irrational belief system. Um, Nowhere in his statement in the New York Times nor in his book does he actually give the reader a definition of what he believes a biological race is. And in all of my work, I make it very clear what evolutionary biologists use as their criteria for the definition of race and explain why um, the concept itself is so problematic and why those conditions don't hold in our species anatomically modern humans. So in fact, I would argue he's the one that's maintaining an irrational orthodoxy, and that is the notion that human beings have biological races. Now, where we agree is existence of geographically based genetic variation in humans. That's certainly true. You can look at a number of traits that are determined genetically and that differ at different frequencies in various human groups. That reality, however, doesn't mean that they are biological races. So there's a problem here with definitions, and the definitional problem is where um, we have the biggest issue. So to follow up on that, to kind of maybe pursue how to cash that out, what you just said, in, in terms that will maybe land with people that are less grounded in this science, you're saying that there are actually these clusters of genetic variation that that have a geographic specificity, but that that in turn doesn't map onto anything that we could really identify as an actual biological race, if I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that that is exactly correct. The fact that we have geographically based genetic differences does not mean that we necessarily have biological races. And it seems in part also that 
like, okay, I'll, I'll just, as a confession, when I read David Reich's piece, which I read when I came across it one day, just reading the New York times, I was like, wow, this sounds like the way that the whole article is in fact constructed really made me feel as someone who had long agreed with the idea that there was no biological concept of race. I was suddenly like, wow, well, maybe there is this new science that's showing that there are these differences and so on. And then I was really um, gratified to read some of the ways in which you pushed back against it as well as other geneticists. But I was really struck that, well, it made me wonder whether there has been a way in which some people, perhaps non-scientists, have argued this science that they kind of overstated what the science says. In other words, they tried to deny that there was any real clusters of genetic difference that did have any ways that they could appear to be racial, quote unquote, racially significant. And so I wondered if there's a way in which some of the ways that the science has been maybe overstated in the past has helped give people like David Reich a certain kind of purchase that they otherwise when, wouldn't have. When Reich is referring to these people who have been making these claims, he's not referring to people who are trained in evolutionary biology or genetics. He's referring to mainly people who are cultural anthropologists mm -hmm. and sociologists who actually don't know the science very well. And so they'll hear what we say about the non-existence of biological races in, in anatomically modern humans, and they'll then jump to the conclusion, oh, that means we're, that all people are the same. And that's in fact not true. My biggest problem with him is the way he conflates people who understand the genetics of biological variation, like myself, with people who don't understand it. And you know, making that claim, particularly about me in his book, uh, when in fact he doesn't cite a single thinking that I ever read. He bases his claim on his interpretation of a lecture I gave at Harvard. Quite frankly, I would never write something in my book about someone's belief system without actually reading something that they wrote. Uh, I've written two books on this, and I'm absolutely sure he never took the time to read them. But again, that's one of the things you can do when you have white privilege. You can make all sorts of claims and not be actually responsible in the way that I have to be responsible, because if I were to say something like that, I would be lambasted up and down. Right. You know, as organized uh, socialists who've been on the left for a while, we're completely unfamiliar with that method of strawmanning people's arguments. And, and um, anyways, I'm sorry. Whatever <laughs> <laughs> happens on the left. I'm just, <laughs> no. um, and I want to come back to that question of, of privilege. It's something that when I interviewed for Socialist Worker, you, you talked about. And I think I think it's very relevant here. But I, I do want to start while we're talking about distinguishing between geographic clusters and race. Maybe if you can give an example. I believe you've written about this regarding things like sickle cell anemia, how what is a practical example of where people can and the consequences of confusing a genetic trait or a cluster of, you know, uh, genetic predispositions, predispositions um, that may have some geographic variation with what is essentially a cultural concept of race? Let's take one that, you know, your readers are, and listeners are probably very familiar with is the notion of adaptation to high altitude. So there are populations that have evolved living in high altitude, and we can show that there are genetic adaptations that allow them to be able to operate and to live at those high altitudes. This occurs in people in the Eastern Africa Plateau. Uh, it occurs in people in the Andes. It occurs in people in, in the Himalayas. There are different genetic adaptations in, in different groups of people. Now, 
this made its way into the popular culture when people like John Antine, who wrote the book Taboo, you know, basically claiming that we're afraid to talk about differences in human beings with regard to athletic ability, made the claim that, you know, Kenyan runners were genetically adapted to high altitude and that gave them a superiority in international long distance running. But then he, he made it a racial claim. Right. When in fact it's not a racial claim. It's 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 the fact that populations that come from high altitude have these adaptations. And in the case of the Kenyans, combined with these high altitude adaptations, they had biometric features in terms of their size, uh, limb length, etc., which give them a predisposition to be excellent long distance runners. That's not true of people, for example, from the Himalayas, who have high altitude adaptations, but their other biometrics don't work for them being long distance. So these are examples of geographically based genetic variation that differ in different groups of people, um, but these are not racial differences because the people from the Himalayas and the people from Kenya are not different biological races. They are populations that have an evolutionary history that differs from each other with regard to how they adapted to high altitude. That's not the same thing. It's not right. the same thing as a biological race. That then gets into the question of, if you can explain for people the difference between the cultural and even political concept of race and the notion of a biological concept, because one of the things that I found really interesting in the response that you helped organize to the David Reich piece was he's one of his claims, and I also want to get back into that taboo, words like taboo and orthodoxy and, and, and the idea of who, who's being repressed in, in, in this debate. But first, you know, one of the claims Reich is making, and I think maybe, Eric, this is what you were getting at is what, what can be a little bit seductive or, you know, seem to make sense, is that there's been a politicization of the science. And Reich is trying to just do, and people like him, not just to make it all about him, there's people who are just trying to do quote unquote objective research. Do you know what I mean? But these and that people's maybe well-founded concerns about racism are coming into play, but we have to have objective science. And one, one of the things that in, in your BuzzFeed, the response you, you wrote that BuzzFeed published, and we're going to link to all this in our show notes so that our listeners can can pursue this stuff, is that actually it's right. It's that, of course, we have to do the science, but to... to People who maybe understand genetics but don't understand the history and the culture and the political terms of race, their science gets skewed because they don't even realize when it's their own cultural biases that are leading them down the wrong path. So maybe if you could explain that a little bit more. I thought it was a really compelling argument. The notion that any scientist does science purely objectively is just false. Um, we try for objectivity. and. That, of course, varies depending upon where the scientists come from and what their own social experiences are. And, and unfortunately, when we look at the history of genetics, this is a field that for the most part in the Western world has been dominated by persons of European descent and who grow up in a society where institutional racism is something they simply don't think about because they experience it in a positive way every day. <laughs> My experience is the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. I grew up the child of poor, working class African Americans who, you know, had to struggle every day to survive. I had to avoid being murdered in my own neighborhood by the police for me to be able to go to school. So my experience coming into this debate 
It's very different from the vast majority of people in my field. And so it was far easier for me to see their political orientation, which they systematically deny, which is they're quite happy and comfortable with the way our society currently operates. And so when those of us come forward raising a critique of racism, a critique of classism, a critique of gender bias in the society, they always want to make a claim that we are the ones politicizing science right. and they are the ones carrying out objective research. And that is so far from the truth, it's, it's not even worth – well, it is worth discussing here, but it's, <laughs> it's a BS. But on the other hand, it does seem so counterintuitive that by bringing social theory and an understanding of the social and political world to bear on your science, it actually improves the science, right? I mean, because the point is that you're making is that we tend to basically import those notions unconsciously and then that undermines the science. But and then therefore, by rendering that more explicit, it actually helps to free the science from those implicit biases. But that runs so counter to the way that people are taught about things, because it seems like there is just one notion of science, because that's just based on pure objective truth and anything that doesn't follow that. That is to say, anything that does pay any attention to the social and political context is therefore biased. Well, what we're doing is we're identifying our bias mm -hmm. and making it clear this is our way of approaching this problem. And those who maintain the pure objectivity of science, again, what they're doing is they are simply pointing fingers at other people without being willing to do the critical self-examination of what drives the way they do science. And not so much the method of science, because all scientists, again, as I say, strive for objectivity in their method. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the social enterprise of science, and that is associated with the agendas of mainly the ruling class, mm -hmm. because it's not ever been driven by what working class people want in the world. It's driven mainly by things that the ruling class is interested in commoditizing and selling. Mm -hmm. And genetics can allow you to make products that you can build for the purpose of marketing and convincing people that they should take this drug or that drug based upon their ethnicity or some other crazy scheme. But at the end of the day, the money which is driving the scientific enterprise in the Western world is driven by the agenda of capitalism, pure and simple. I'd love to go down that path a little bit with you right now. You know, since it was, it was uh, earlier this year that the DNA testing industry got a big plug when Elizabeth Warren very mistakenly thought that she could take on Donald Trump's taunts by approving uh, some sort of biological, genetic, indigenous, uh, you know, her roots. And I'd, I'd love to hear about what you thought about that incident itself. But also, as someone in this field, as a researcher, an academic, and a scholar, have you seen your field be distorted over the past decade or so by the emergence of this big... Uh, you know, what are the companies, uh, 22 and me, you know, the, the different, the different 20, sorry, I, that, that I just revealed a lot about my size, um, <laughs> you know, by this industry of, of, of DNA testing, you know, amongst people who are serious scientists, the, like, like people not DNA, like Danny DNA ancestry <laughs> testing industry, we consider that recreational genetics, mm -hmm. you know, nobody right. takes what they're doing seriously. But the problem, of course, is that they're marketing this. And since their um, genetic panels that they use to determine ancestry are proprietary, 
the scientific community as a whole doesn't get a chance to examine how, how good they are. They can go out and sell these kits to people who don't understand the science behind it. And what I tell most people is that, and again here, particularly for people of African descent, that this is probably a waste of time. You're wasting your money because mm -hmm. the assumptions behind the DNA panels um, to associate with ancestry 400 years ago are in fact flawed. So that's a problem that Elizabeth Warren fell into because, you know, she's listening to popular media about what you can do with these DNA ancestry testing and also not understanding the difference between cultural and genetic ancestry because many people who became cultural members of Amerindian nations were not people who were genetically of Amerindian descent. So it's entirely possible that she had ancestors who had joined various tribes, but they were still of European descent. And that could have come down to her as a cultural narrative. But then when she goes back to do her DNA testing, she finds out that she actually really doesn't have a whole lot of DNA associated with people of Amerindian descent. So th those two confusions uh, were and very much to her own undoing here with regard to this uh, taunting by Donald Trump. Yeah, She really would have done herself well to talk to some real scientists before she went around doing that. also pivot back to some of the other concrete examples that David Reich talks about in his article, because I just think that they help to, again, to illustrate the ways in which the kind of notions of biological foundations of race are so seductive that even someone who's a geneticist can be seduced by them. So he goes on to say how, look, if we don't acknowledge the ways in which there is some sort of biological foundation for race, we're essentially um, leaving ourselves vulnerable to those scientists who are now pursuing the research that shows that there are such clusters of genetic markers that are associated with race. And he gives a couple examples. He talks about a study that shows that some genetic variation is associated with people who delay having children. And then he talks about another study of 70,000 people that found genetic variations in more than 20 genes that were predictive of performance on intelligence tests. So again, these, these are very different things from biological races. Right. You know, we, we know that, again, once again, that there's genetic variation within our species. And we know that natural selection is still operating on humans. Mm -hmm. And so life history variation has a genetic basis. 
that doesn't mean that those people are a different biological race. So, so why don't we talk about quickly what the definition of a biological race is mm-hmm. and make it clear why those examples don't give you that. So the way we approach it, and here I say people in my field approach biological race, is that there are two criteria that have to be satisfied. If either one is satisfied, you can make a claim that a group is a biological race. The first criterion has to do with the amount of genetic variation within said groups versus the amount of genetic variation between them. And so for there to be biological races, there has to be more genetic distance between groups than there is within them. In other words, if the genetic uh, variation is so big that it basically covers the distance between the groups in question, say sub-Saharan Africans and Europeans, then you really can't say that those groups are biological races. And we've known that since the early 70s. And so what Reich talks about in his piece in the Times and and in his book is the study by Richard Lewinton, Mm -hmm. which showed that there was more genetic variation within human populations than between them. Okay. And since Lewinton himself was a socialist, they often make that result associated with socialist views of biology, when in fact, other people who weren't socialists found the same results. Mm-hmm. So two of the great population genesis of that time, Aaron Roy Kahardry and Matatashi Ney, found the exact same results that Lewinton did. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't happen to be socialists. So you never see these folks claiming that this is Ney's fallacy or Roy Kahadri's fallacy. They always talk about the Lewinton fallacy. But mm-hmm. the simple fact of the matter is that those measurements show and have repeatedly shown, looking at protein polymorphisms, looking at um, genetic uh, DNA genetic markers of various types, that that's true. There's more genetic variation within human groups than there is between them. And that, therefore, means we don't have biological races. Now, does that mean that all groups of people are exactly the same with regard to their gene frequencies? And the answer is no. It doesn't mean that. And so when when Reich claims that there are geneticists out there denying the reality of genetic differences between groups, I would like him to tell us who those people are. Mm-hmm. Because he said that I said that, although I've never said that. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's making up a fictitious group of people that he can then use to construct a straw man argument. Now, the other criterion is whether you can find uh, different groups of people who can be constructed as genetically or evolutionary unique lineages. Mm-hmm. And once again, using phylogenetic methods, we've applied those to human beings and we don't find any of these unique lineages. Mm. They simply don't exist. The amount of gene flow that has occurred between major groups of humans over our existence has always been high enough so that we don't develop any unique lineages. And in fact, what I point out in the chapter I just wrote about Reich's fallacious claims was that his own research supports that because his entire book, his approach is based on the idea that ancient human migrations were in fact quite complex, as complex as migrations in the modern time periods. And if that's true, that means that gene flow was always very high between different groups of people, which would have invalidated the possibility that they became unique evolutionary lineages, and therefore the the ways in which biological races could form couldn't have happened in our species. I, I so want wrong on both accounts. I want to follow up on that because I was struck 
by, you know, when I first read Reich's article, I didn't pick up on this, but reading it again, I, right, even, not even his book, the article he wrote in the, in the Times, towards the end when he's giving some caveats, you know, to sort of try to cover his rear end about, you know, from attacks, he actually, he acknowledges that the category of whites, in his words, represent a mixture of four ancient populations that lived 10,000 years ago and were each as different from one another as Europeans and East Asians are today. But then the rest of his piece rests on the foundation that there could be a category called whites. It really baffled me when, so first of all, correct me yeah. if, I'm, if I'm misunderstanding that, but no, it, you're it, not misunderstanding right, it, it seemed to me to then be such a powerful statement, such a, a, a statement about the power of the ideology of race. And, you know, well, let's also and, examine yeah. the point you just made about as different from each other as they are from East Asians. Reich gives the reader the impression that the difference between East Asians and Europeans is some huge difference. <laughs> right. In fact, not a huge difference. Mm. And so he, again, assumes that socially defined groups are biological races, when in fact, the criteria that we used to determine the amount of genetic distance required to discuss the existence of a biological race um, is given by the population geneticist Sewell Wright, um, who came up with a statistic called FST. And what this FST statistic tells us is the amount of genetic variation of subgroups versus the total species of humans. And you can calculate this number. And the number to talk about uh, the existence of a biological race is, is an FST value that has to exceed 0.250. Okay, so this is about one quarter, has to exceed that. That number is never exceeded in anatomically modern humans. In anatomically modern humans, the average for that number is about 0.119. We're not even close to that number. And so when you look at the FSTs between you know, East Asians and, and Europeans, it's about at that level. Mm -hmm. So while well, he says as different as, that has no meaning unless you can quantify that in some way. And in fact, we have quantified it. And that's why I continually say that at least based upon the criteria we use to look at genetic variation in other species, our species anatomically modern humans doesn't come close to the threshold at which we would start talking about the existence of biological races. So let's kind of pose this kind of the other way now and think about it like when people, quote, see racial difference or see races, period – Let's talk about the fallacy that's inherent in that. In other words, people see skin color or something like that, and they assume that that, that wait, it's just self-evident. That's a racial difference, right? But really what we're talking about there, again, just correct me if I'm wrong, is that we have associated, because of social, political, and cultural cues, this notion of race with people with different skin color or perhaps other sorts of anatomical features that vary really at the level of our kind of the exterior skin that we have, but that the point being that those ways in which people may look similar actually have nothing to do with and really actually themselves cover over all the tremendous genetic difference and variation that, that we've just been talking about that exist within groups as much as between groups. Is that, is that a decent way of describing the, the, the yeah, phenomenon? Yeah, a decent way, and particularly when we talk about skin color, because in anthropology, there's a principle of non-discordance. And what non-discordance means is that different physical traits 
are not correlated with each other in various populations. They sort of mix and match depending upon the conditions under which that population evolved in its relatively recent and deep history. And so when you look at skin color, okay, skin color, pretty much everybody who lives in the tropics has dark skin. Yet if we were to look at those groups using 19th century anthropological characteristics, um, we'd have people who we'd call African or sub-Saharan African. And we also have people who, on the Australian continent who have very dark skin. And we also have Pacific Islanders, like in the Solomon Islands, who have very dark skin. In fact, physically with skin and hair color, hair type, you would find these groups very hard to distinguish from each other. But if we look at those groups in terms of their position in the genetic history of our species, they're in fact quite disparate groups mm-hmm. within the limits of anatomically modern humans. So sub-Saharan Africans, Australoids, and Pacific Islanders are not on the same branches. In fact, Europeans are closer to sub-Saharan Africans than they are to either Australoids or Pacific Islanders, but yet the groups have different skin colors. Mm-hmm. And so that trait just doesn't do it, and no other physical trait does it. They simply can't be used to define biological races. There was a huge outcry of anger several weeks ago when a memo was uncovered that the Trump administration had issued internally that said that there was going, they wanted to pursue an executive order to make it that your sex given at birth established your gender for life and that there could be no change to that. And this seems like another way of trying to use pseudoscience to impose certain kinds of social and cultural assumptions in ways that are actually you know, discriminatory and backwards. And I wonder if you could talk well, about my, my first response is there's no science to that position. Hmm. I mean, even even the most uninformed people who study gender understand that gender is a complex um, result of both um, genetics of development and epigenetics of hormonal states of brain structures I mean, anybody who knows anything. And so, you, you know, again, you're talking about an administration where stupidity is the rule of the day. Re- so requirement. Again, the more stupid the claim, the more stupid the program and the more hurtful, the more likely it's going to rise to the top. So, so there's absolutely no science behind this notion that gender is some simple thing that occurs at birth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually more the position of right wing um, religious organizations and it has absolutely no no credibility within science none <laughs> you you look practically alarmed at the whole, the whole, well, I mean, the whole you know, enterprise again, you know see, the thing is there's nothing that these people do that harms me hmm. um, because I've been living this my whole life I mean hmm. really what's more alarming is the inaction on the part of the American people against these assaults on our basic liberties that's what alarms me Right. You know, the, to have the devil act like the devil, <laughs> that's not alarming. That's not confusing. It's the fact that people continue to put up with this bullshit. Mm-hmm. That's more alarming. So now let's turn to when we started, Danny was talking about how the New York Times was reporting on the use of uh, science by various far right groups to try to find the basis, some sort of scientific basis for their v- v- notions of white supremacy and so on. Could you maybe talk about how but that one of the most idiotic ones were, were, were Nazis online chugging, you know, milk. quarts of milk as if lactose intolerance was this sign of, of great, you know, genetic superiority. Well, the Maasai of 
East Africa are lactose tolerant too into adulthood, and they can chug milk just as good as a European could. Mm-hmm. So, so they're not even using a trait that you could identify with being solely European. Mm-hmm. Nor could you use blonde hair, by the way, because there are actually two mutations that give blonde hair, one that's found in northern European populations and one that's found in Melanesians in the Pacific Islands. The Melanesians, people have dark skin like mine, and they have blonde hair. Mm-hmm. So blonde hair doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. So, that, again, this only illustrates the desperation of the you know fascist program with regard to trying to find biological reasons for their superiority, which they, they never could. Right. Although, given that Hitler was able, you know, the dark, the, the brunette Hitler was able to, put, to talk about the blonde Aryan race, I don't, I don't have much faith that the facts are gonna are gonna be the quite quite the thing that slows them down. Yeah. Well, well, Hitler, you know, said uh, in his interview with Hermann Rousting that he in fact knew that there was no such thing as as race biologically. He actually says that. But then he says he's going to place the banner of race upon, or the, the mantra of race upon the banner of national socialism. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the tactics of fascism is to operate behind the big lie. The bigger the lie, the more spectacular its capacity to capture the minds of, of, of individuals willing to, to, to run behind it. Well, maybe that's a good way to transition to the question of science for the people, mm-hmm. um, because it seems like, you know, this is a group that was around in the 1970s that I, I think you were a part of back then and that it is now making a kind of resurgence. It's being restarted and reformulated for a time when the questions of science are sort of more and more important than ever, perhaps because of issues like global climate change, the issues that we've just been discussing about race, or even the, the questions of transgender people and so on, which the Trump administration has also been taking aim at using the tools of pseudoscience, so to speak. Um, but I thought maybe you could talk some about this group and its relevance today, or perhaps its imp- growing importance today, and what you think it can contribute to this discussion and to the growth of social movements as well that stand for justice, liberation, and so on in the face of of a reinvigorated right wing. Yeah, I was uh, very active in science for the people in the late 70s, early 80s. And one of the things that it, it gives people who are attempting to make progressive social change is it's a group of people who actually understand the issues, the scientific issues that are being used as tools to prevent that change to be able to take those off the table. So if the argument is, and and this is an argument that has been made, is that genes determine intelligence, intelligence determines social status, some races have more genes for intelligence than others, therefore the fact that African Americans are consistently, have higher uh, levels of unemployment, uh, lower wages, lower positions in the industrial infrastructure, this is not the result of discrimination. It's simply a result of poor genes on the part of Africans. We can take that argument off the table. We can show that that's pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. Now, once you take that argument off the table, then we have to begin to ask more serious questions about why these patterns persist. And that opens the ground for us to start to examine 
how capitalism works and how it works in regard to institutional racism, and therefore making an argument that if we truly believe the things we say we believe in this society, then we have an opportunity here to make this system work in a way that can help all people. Now, people who've done a little bit more thinking about how capitalism works, and I believe I'm one of those people, I would argue that capitalism could never do this. Right. Okay, it's simply a system that produces what it produces. So injustice goes along with the way the system works. Continuing loss of jobs goes along with the way the system works. Continuing lowering of wages goes along with the way the system works. So if people think that, well, yeah, we take the scientific argument off the table. Uh, now we can get to how the system works. Now we have an opportunity to say well, we need a new system. Mm-hmm. Because this system is doing what it does. And it's always going to do what it does. Right. It's not so broken. Science for the People is an organization that can help with regard to many of these. They're not justifications because they're out and out lies. Uh, pseudo justifications for what's happening in this system to take that stuff off the table so we can get down to actually what's really happening and how the system invalidates our, our possibilities for having a humane society. This renewal of science for the people and with, you know, I'm sure there's a a range of different viewpoints around. It's going to attract people on the left end of the spectrum, but probably, you know, maybe a range of viewpoints around does capitalism have to go, etc. I very much agree with what you were saying, but it's very much, you know, it's politicized scientists and it's it's reemerging at the same time that. Broader numbers of scientists, if we look at last year's climate march or science march, are seeing the need to get involved in politics, mostly to oppose climate change denial, to oppose what probably many people see as the politicization of science. So there's an interesting dynamic going on, right, where people are being thrown in the sciences into political action, but there's an important debate to be had among scientists about is the aim, again, sort of to take politics out of science, or like we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, to actually understand that science has always been political and that you have to take a stand on that. And I'm curious how that plays out. It's it's a lot of things. It's giving these people the opportunity to understand that science has always been political. And quite frankly, you know, I'm somewhat cynical about this whole March for Science movement because quite frankly, it's just more of what I've seen over my entire career. And and I hate to say it, it's, it's upper middle class, for the most part, white folks, who suddenly something that they care about is endangered. It's the environment uh, writ large. It's their funding for their research writ large. And now all of a sudden they want to become active. So the whole time when my people were being ground under the boot of this society, none of them gave a damn. Okay, But now there's something that that concerns them. So I've always known that science was political. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it's a question of how we construct the scientific enterprise and who we want it to benefit. Mm -hmm. See, what I want science to do is to liberate people. Okay, I want it to end hunger. Right. I want it to give people the opportunity to have meaningful, healthy lives. Okay, I'm not for using my science to create weapons of mass destruction that will then be turned upon, you know, anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements around the world. Folks I work with in in the building I work with, they're entirely fine with that. 
So I've always been standing in the opposition of the way the scientific enterprise is, you know, in the words of Mark, you know, has turned uh, the man of science into its paid wage laborer. And that's exactly what's what it's always been. So some of these folks are now finding that um, Donald Trump and his Tea Party Republicans are tramping on stuff that they find valuable. They never thought that we were valuable. So hopefully we can take this discussion beyond that. Right. Which seems to make science for the people all the more critical. Yeah, exactly. Because actually it is a group of scientists who do seem like in in agreement with what you've just laid out, very conscious of the fact that it's really important to bring a kind of grounded left wing understanding of the ways in which social biases get imported into science in order to actually free science from that. And they seem to be that left edge that could, that, or, or a left-wing force that within this broader, quote, march for science could actually help to politicize and radicalize those scientists who kind of are new to thinking about these issues in a way that will actually help to advance the movement as a whole. Yeah, I mean, and I hope that we'll, we'll be able to do that. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I really, great. really appreciate, I appreciate it. it, guys. Keep right, up guys. the fight. Constantly on, constantly on. The found you, not Robotron. Peace is the word of word before. So the move upon the I do not sniff the coke, I only smoke the sense of Mila.